met this six-year-old child in this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. get very weird uh, welcome to the episode of subconscious realms i'm your host general lee uh, and for today, we've got um, a swapcast with Sir Robbie Marks of the Meta Mindcast podcast. And our guest today is the phenomenal Sir Gary Wade. But well, now they're Robbie and Gary. Hey. Hey, How's glad to be doing? back with you guys. Yeah, yes. definitely. So, um, are you both good? And Robbie, you wanted to, you wanted to look into uh, the Scythians? Yeah, I've been following the Scythian Trail for quite some time, um, you know, just going back into the Siberian steppe and kind of following some of that imagery as far as um, even how they prepare their tombs um, are very Egyptian-like with sarcophagi and um, just the, the pounded metal work that they did um, relating into, you know, the various... Um, like past existence of like the line of Cain and kind of how that flows through. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely an, a topic that I'm very interested in. It, it, well, the, the dragon imagery comes from, from, um, from that, it's from the Scythians as well. Isn't it? Yeah. They've got the dragons and in a lot of their arts, they, they also have like the pounded um, griffins. Um, which were the guardians of the gold. And um, it's just interesting how you see that transitioning. And is the Sphinx, you know, um, in Egypt, uh, you know, could it have potentially been a griffin at one point? Um, it's, yeah, just interesting stuff to think about. Yeah, a couple of really interesting things in there that, that you had said, Robbie, was, you know, first thing is, is that serpentine connection and, uh, you know, as what General Lee was also relating to to dragons, there are several groups of the uh, Scythians. You have the uh, Sumerians, the Mazageti, the Sarmatians, um, the Saka, and the Egetheria. There's at least uh, four specific divisions of it, but it's the Sarmatians that really sort of underscore the metal craft and the serpentine look so they would actually call themselves the serpent people right, and right. they they would make things and masks like serpents to represent that their 
armor was in done in scales and it was yes. designed to oxidize so it would have this green reptilian type of, of of look and they were very skilled in the smith's craft and building making goblets and urns and things that you know were transferred over as part of that technology and everything and the mythos over into the tuatha dodanan of ireland whom you know are part of that same same group so yeah when you look at the scythians and that sort of connection to to those things and then you you talk about uh, a connection to the pharaohs i think you can make connections through branches of scythians and indo-aryans that be that start to make up that um pharaoh bloodline and obviously why you see some things that are similar and akin and so then when you talk about the griffins um you can look at the griffin as some kind of let's say bird-like face so to mm. speak um, some people think a degraded uh, being uh, from what it was formerly so you could look at it from that particular perspective as well uh, the Sphinx typically is understood with a human head or a lion's head, right. and its glyph was represented as, as, as a lion in ancient Egypt. And then you have these similar kind of crossover things where you have lion and head in Sumeria, then you have bird and human head in, I mean, in Egypt, then you have the bird and the human head over in um sumeria with uh, the anunnaki where right. sometimes they're depicted with these raven type of heads and sometimes they're depicted with a human head it's the same figurine that's doing the same ritual around this whatever technology that little tree thing is yeah. and those pine cones or crystals or whatever they're they're doing there and then you also have imagery that goes throughout the middle east that are the carubs which are these bull or ox type of faces that are protecting the temples and all of that's representative of a trubum with their four faces but just showing one face at a time as they would take a physical form very nice yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, garrett you know the um Sarmatian draco the military yeah. standard were they patient uh, and the romans copied that as well didn't they well, the Romans drafted the Sarmatians into their army, so you had an, yeah, yeah. several waves of exporting of Sarmatian or Scythian um, culture to the British Isles, but specifically they hired them as mercenaries when they were fighting the Celts. They were fighting basically right. Scythians with Scythians by doing so, but that Draconis understanding or the Dragoons all comes from that imagery and the introduction into Wales and, and into uh, Great Britain by the Romans through the Sarmatians. Um, so that has a distinct connection back. And if you look at another interesting connection, as you look at dragon in Greek and Greek takes their, basically their culture is extension of the, and their pantheon is an extension of the Scythians who were there first. Um, Draconta is the Greek word and dracont for dragon, and that means watcher, mm -hmm. <laughs> in, watcher. in Greek. Yeah, just as a cherubim is a watcher and a seraphim angel 
serpent-faced dragon six-winged angel is a watcher. Right. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and the Netaru gods in Egypt were also called watchers. Watchers, right, right. Now, Gary, have you found any links um, between the uh, Scythian Sarmatians and maybe the Etruscans as far as the, the founding of Rome itself? Yeah, I think so. So just as the Greeks are inheriting a Scythian uh, culture and religion, right. uh, once they migrate to go live amongst the Scythians, you see something similar in Rome. So you have the Romans inheriting the lands and living amongst early on as the Latin peoples, um, and several different versions of the Latins, like the Elbas and people like that. But it's just that sort of amalgamation into the older religion and culture of the Etruscans, um, who originally settled the seven hills of Rome and Whoa, set right. up and set up the Sibylline um, goddess and oracular goddess and worship from Greece and mm -hmm. Arcadia. And so you have that sort of connection. So if you look at the Scythians as the proto-Greeks and the Etruscans as the proto-Romans, um, you quickly learn and get into the understanding that the Etruscans are a branch of a type of uh, Scythian or Aryan, uh, Indo-Aryan, uh, right. just as, as what happened in Greece. So yes, I see a definite uh, similarity there as well. Right. And the Etruscans uh, were also big into uh, metal work. after the collapse of the Bronze Age um, coming into the Iron Age. The Etruscans basically carried that metalworking tradition into the foundation of Rome as well. Right. Yes, right. they did. Yeah. yeah, they essentially sort of suggest that everything, even though they like to have their own sort of mythos that goes back to Romulus, Remus, they're actually, yes. um, you know, offspring of gods of Greece. Um, and then the settlements tend to be more of an extension of Greeks settling into, into Roman, although there's a few other peoples that come in there as well. So that technology flows with it. And right. so, you have, uh, you know, an Etruscan uh, pantheon that is um, a little bit different than what the Greek pantheon is, but understand that the, the Greeks had sort of transliterated the names of those gods and things into names that fit more of, of, of you know, uh, of, of their culture. So, but it's, it's the same ancient pantheon. So, and the same knowledge that would come from those gods would go to the same two people coming through right right yeah yeah so bizarre that the connections it really is yeah and 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 it's just unfortunate that this is all sort of hidden history right it's not that yeah. the information isn't out there it's just extraordinarily difficult to, to get at it and, <laughs> and then link it together yeah yeah, yeah. It, it's almost think it's you know from a conspiracy perspective um you would think that they were conspiring to make it difficult as opposed to make it easier. Now, I also recognize there's a there's a possibility of just the incompetency, but it's just too incompetent, too consistently incompetent, not to be mm -hmm. something more than incompetence. Yeah, it has to be deliberate. 
in my opinion. Well, and when you look at the long um, line of these dragon kings going back, you know, to pre-Diluvian times, I mean, consistently in order to maintain power, you almost have to whitewash a lot of that history and make it acceptable, you know, in the eyes of, of the generations. <laughs> well, and as they say, you know, history is written by the victors. And the victors, if we understand right. that from the polytheist perspective, they're going to write that history in honor of the gods and the name of the gods that they worship and, yes. and you know, sort of uplift their branch culture. It's the same history. It's the same culture. It's the same religion. It's just that's the culture of the Scythians. It's the culture of the giants. They are, you know, right. they're like the great Highlander. There can only be one, only on yes. more of a national scale, right? So, hey, Gary, what, what, what do you uh, think of, like how you said, the Sarmatians were over in, in Britain? What do you think of um, the Anglo Saxons when they formed the Sarmatians being incorporated into the Anglo Saxons? But purely because of like uh, how they were like farmers, and then just how good they were in battle. Um, well, I think I think any time you get that that sort of grafting in of new warrior culture, right? Um, it it has a significant change. I would you know, look at the Saxons as being, you know, a little bit different than the Britons that were there before. So the Britons still would have had a history of being connected to the Tuatha de Danann, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then the Saxons, they come over from Germany. So they're just more of another variant of the Tuatha de Danann or the Scythians that migrated up the Danube River and into, you know, um, Russia as they migrated to to the east and to Germany and then to uh, Denmark and then into Sweden and, and Norway to, to create the Vikings. So when you have a migration from the Saxons um, from Germany, is that more of a farmer class or is that still part of that uh, more um, military class? So it's hard, hard, hard to know when you say who are the yeah. original Saxons, right? Yeah. And then you get the, all the intermixing again because you've got right after the Romans introducing that uh, uh, another wave of, of Sarmatians. And it's a large wave of them that actually come to fight for the Romans. Mm. Um, and, I write, and I write about this in my first book. You have wars that are going to break out and invasions that are going to break out with that northern branch of the vikings right and then you're going to have intermarriage and a mix you've got a melting pot of yes. quite a warrior race of people that's going to yes. go back and forth as to who's going to control the kingship so you go into the time of king alfred and uh, you know he's fighting the danes and the vikings and he's fighting it in the christian and roman sort of version that's adopted christianity and that's going to go back and forth uh, for a few hundred years and then when you have the crossing of william the conqueror in 1066 he's reestablishing that viking influence that viking bloodline through the bloodlines of rollo who changed their name to saint Clair with the treaty of saint Clair in 9 
10, I believe it was, when they expropriated Normandy from, from the French and then used that as a launching pad to get back the throne of England from, from the Saxons. So it's it's quite a web of uh, oh, yeah. uh, of history. And unless you sort of understand the original sort of roots, you, you kind of lose what's really going on there. And now looking back to um, post-Diluvian, um, we have the miscellaneous German tribes. We have the steppe tribes. Um, we have um, the tribes coming, you know, from the, the Irish English coast. Um, how many groups and sets of these, these peoples do you see coming down and intermingling and, and you know, Yeah, it, there, I mean, there's a lot. So, I mean, you yeah. have, if if I've understood the question correctly, so you've got, I mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the Agathria or the Agrithi. Some people, it's also pronounced as, that's a tribe of the Scythians that is, uh, in their mythos, goes back to Hercules right. um, as starting that branch and that they are going to be the ones that are moving into Romania and where the bloodlines of Vlad the Impaler will descend from. You also have another group of Scythians that are going to move into the, the U, U, Ukraine group or Ukraine area. And these are the, uh, the Khazars. Um, a lot of people, you know, have the, there's this great mythos out there about the Karzarians and that they've stolen the Jewish identity. And there's no doubt that there'd be a large amount of the diaspora of Judah after 70 AD would have intermixed with them. But the Khazars are, and some people even take them back to being the Edomites. And you can make a connection mm -hmm. back to the Horim that intermarried with the Edomites in, in southern uh, land of the covenant. But these Khazars are, um, are a branch of the Scythians known as the Tartars, right? Tart Part of that Tartarian empire of people. And so when they set up... Um, they're also known as the Ashkenazi uh, as well, and they set up the uh, czarist bloodline of the Putyanid out of Kiev, and they set up later a branch uh, into uh, Moscow of uh, the Putyanin that was superseded by a junior shoot, just as the Plantanger or junior shoot of the Anjou, the Romanovs through intermarriage are a junior shoot of the Putyanin of the Rurikud dynasty uh, of, of Kiev. And is that, so, go ahead. Is that the Vladimir Putin? Yeah, yeah he's gonna, yeah. He's connected into that. That's why he's after <laughs> Kiev, right? And he's not going to destroy Kiev because it's the most holy city. City of the mother country. Yeah, so yeah. the Putin genealogy comes out of nowhere in about 1850 with either his grandfather or his great-grandfather. Mm -hmm. And uh, typically in the Rurikid dynasty or the Putyanin bloodline in particular, if they had children out of wedlock, they wouldn't give them the full bloodline inheritance mm -hmm. um, and they wouldn't uh, give them the full name. 
so they would give him a partial name. And so there is no trace of a Putin name anywhere in Russia before 1850 or uh, at all. And so, and that bloodline is actually imported into Russia. And how that happens is, is that Putin's father, he receives half the name, or his grandfather receives half the name. He has a son who is going to move with with uh, Vladimir Putin to St. Petersburg in around World War One, which is how he arrives in Russia. So he believes he is sort of a, you know, a bastard son of the royal bloodline, and because the Romanov bloodline, the Scythian bloodline there was basically wiped from the face of the earth for the most part by the European bloodlines in World War II when they created communism to to do so. Um, Is the successor to that Scythian empire of the Putyan and bloodline out of Kiev, and he will not settle until he gets his ancient empire rebuilt. So mm-hmm. he honors like Vladimir the Great, for example, and he has this um, Masonic order, just as you have like other orders in the West you might recognize as the Knights of the Seraphim with the uh, royal families of Sweden or the uh, the order of the Golden Fleece of the Anjou's, the various branches of the Anjou and the Bourbon family, which the Windsors also are represented in as well. Um, Vladimir the Great um, is the great uh, prince who worked with giants to establish the Rurikurd dynasty in Moscow in, you know, about, uh, oh, I don't know, about a thousand AD or so. And he also has, so he has a statue he created to Vladimir the Great. And Vladimir the Great, just as you have, you know, Vlad the Impaler, that is a name or a title of royalty, right? Um, And you have uh, the double Anunnaki symbol being reintroduced by uh, Putin. And then he's now sort of encompassed a national empirical if you could say it that way religion as he's working with the uh, the eastern orthodox church centered out of constantinople so um he is moving in a line of old line scythian kings, kings. and uh, we're trying to reestablish that scythian empire right and now the uh, you'd mentioned the khazars and the jewish line as far as um a lot of people talk about the you know the um 13th of the lost tribe basically being the Khazarians um and when you take that back to what is it Arthur Kessler um he was actually the one that propagated that mythos and he's tied in with MI5 MI6 so we kind of have to take that with a grain of salt yeah and we know the lost tribes are lost into every country in the world and they'll be gathered from the four corners of the world so to say that they're just specifically all in one area sort of doesn't make sense to when we like excuse me when we line up uh, other information with it so and and a lot of times the Khazarians are also connected to being the southern kingdom that uh, all of the Jewish people that we see today aren't really the Jewish people so there's there's several uh theories on this that none of it really stands up and so 
people will come back to me and they'll present all this kind of information. And, and, and my whole point back to them is, is that, well, maybe a bunch of them are from the Khazars, but there's still a remnant that's originally Jewish and that's who God's going to fight for in the end times. So right, right. let's keep that in mind too. Right. Well, <laughs> and, 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 and you got a lot of polytheism in Judaism. So when they call them the, the satanic Jews, there's, yeah, there's a lot of polytheist Jews, but they're not all polytheist. Right, right. There's multiple sects within yeah. the definition of the Jewish theology. Yeah, exactly. Yep. You know, you know what, I, I, what you just said, then, I, I find quite um, fascinating is the uh, reintroduction of a double Anunnaki symbol. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty weird. And you see that double Anunnaki figure on Sumerian reliefs, right? It's, um... That's not, none of that is being reintroduced coincidentally. It's for, oh, no. it's to rebuild his pedigree and his mythos and his divine right to rule. So, so like, of your own opinion, what do you think all this malarkey in Ukraine's about then? <laughs> From which which side of the malarkey would you like me to speak? <laughs> because it's both sides are malarkey. Which way does the wind do? Yeah, both so, sides. Just 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 your opinion, please. Well, uh, when I look at what's going on in um, Ukraine, is is you obviously have a motivation by Putin to rebuild his empire, and that's going to include uh, more more states than just Kiev. But Kiev is the is the is the uh, jewel of the of, of jewel, all yes. the territory that he wants to take now from the west perspective um you know you have a scenario where putin has said all along that uh, i will never accept nato in in the ukraine and the western globalists which is you know they use america as the attack dog um is a belief system, the globalist belief system and the perpetual war belief system is, you know, is a theology of war and domination, right? So they always want war to go on. So our current president, when he was vice president and uh, has been telling Putin since the Obama was elected that he was going to put NATO into the Ukraine. Right. And he kept poking his eye all the way through the Obama um, uh, reign. And then in 2013, you had a democratically elected Ukraine government, perhaps corrupted because most of them all are, um, mm -hmm. but it was pro-Russia and the CIA and the Obama and Biden administration overthrew that democratic state and put in their own puppet state. Mm. And then went... <laughs> Biden gets elected, he starts talking again about, I'm going to put the Ukraine in, in NATO. And then he lets, he creates an oil supply shortage, which drives up the price of oil, which permits Putin to fund his war. So he's poking him in the eye. And then he's throwing out all of these nonsensical <clears throat> um, things that he's going to do in terms of sanctions that have done nothing. Their economy is improving. Ours is getting worse. The ruble's going back. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. But what he wanted was perpetual war. 
right? The, the problem is, is, is he's falling into, <clears throat> excuse me, Biden is falling into a larger play by the Chinese. Oh. As the Americans are draining all of their military assets over to the Ukraine, they're not going to be able to respond to the bigger play that Xi is going to do into Taiwan and other countries. Yes. Right. And we currently are looking at uh, the Chinese surrounding Taiwan right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if and and they're doing their military uh, exercises mm -hmm. in the month of April, which is very very important. Mm. So there's to do that amphibious invasion where the seas are the calmest is in the months of April and October. Mm. So they're not going this April, but any time forward in the months of October or April, look for that would be the most ideal time for them to go. And I think they'll go before there's a, a another election in, in the U.S. because they have the perfect, incompetent, uh, globalist, perpetual war uh, president that is absolutely committing national suicide who won't be able to respond. And besides that, he's in the pocket of the Chinese, so he's not going to do anything. Right. <laughs> through, blackmail, through blackmail yeah. and compromise. Yeah, yeah. I think what, what's also uh, interesting, with what's happening on, on the 23rd of April over here, um, at 3 p.m., there's going to be a UK disaster alert sent out to all mobile phones. Hmm. Now, what that is supposed to be about, could it be um, like a nuclear warning? I don't know. Yeah. Well, you're going to see more and more preparation for, I guess, for would me. be, I guess, propaganda and a sort of a veneer of here's how we're going to protect you when <clears throat> yeah. there's a nuclear attack that they're actually bringing, trying to bring about. Um, yeah. There's no protection from that unless you're it's somewhere not. deep in the earth and that's only where the elite's going to be. So, right. I mean, they're saying it's for uh, disasters such as uh, severe floodings, fires or extreme weather, but we don't really get, I mean, we don't really get um, tornadoes like you do in America. Mm. I don't think there's ever been one over here. Not that I'm aware of it. No, I've been alive. Yeah. It just so, the right weather conditions for, yeah, for yeah, yeah, yeah. So now, um, speaking of the war machine, um, let's go back into the more ancient uh, Scythian stuff. And um, essentially, wasn't it from uh, this line that we have the emergence of the chariots? You are uh, exactly right. So. It's the Scythians that, um, and as being part of four groups of Indo-Aryans that are developing the war technology. So the chariot is introduced by um, the, the Scythians, and it allows them to invade other nations because it's, right. it's, it's the super weapon of, of the time. They're also expert Horsemen. So they yeah. start as being expert horsemen and able to do war and battle from the horse, whether it's shooting arrows or fighting with the sword or double axes or whatever they're, they're 
the rider would be using. And this knowledge is going to be re-enhanced. And there's another group that is part of the Indo-Aryans that are like these dark-haired um, giants, but they're part of the four Indo-Aryan groups. So like the Persians would be dark-haired. So just as Gilgamesh appears as a dark-haired, pale-skinned giant, um, that's part of that group or the Syrian kings or a lot of the Greek kings and in particularly the ones on Cyprus where the Philistines came from where they, you know, intermarried with um, the uh, the Kaftarim and the Cherethim and the Pelethim Indo-Aryans. And it's this new technology that's going to be reinforced with iron that takes it to a whole yeah. new level exactly. and so you have another group of shepherd kings the hyksos which is part of this indo-aryan group and with the technology being shared even though iron is being rediscovered and re-implemented in cyprus and crete mm -hmm. it's part of that hittite dark-haired syrian Sumeria part of connection where the Hyksos are now going to be the first probably down through the Kassites or the Hurrians uh, are going to introduce the iron reinforced chariots, iron mm -hmm. weaponry on the wheel on the wheels and iron swords and they start to absolutely roll over the Middle East right. and uh, you know will join up with some of their brethren in avarice and actually overthrow the Egyptian dynasty of pharaohs for a while yes. as the Hyksos kings without attacking them because the weaponry is that powerful and we see this iron chariot show up biblically with the Philistines because the Philistines migrated from Cyprus and Crete over to the uh, the covenant land probably at the time around the Santorini um, disasters circa 1550 BC mm -hmm. and are part of the Hyksos bloodlines and relationships. You get an interaction of king's names and a whole bunch of other things going on between Egypt and Cyprus in this time of the Hyksos. And the Hyksos have a lot of Cyprus and Crete imagery in the arts and things like that. And so this is this is becomes the new super super weapon of of this, you know, Indo-Aryans or the Scythians of all the different groups, right? So um, now with the Hyksos, um, when, when they do come in and take over Egypt, um, we see them setting up basically in the south um, lands, and they um, are the serpent people who are worshiping the crocodile and Sobek and, and bringing about this idea of Set and Setos and... and um, yeah, and then you can also, there's some ties at one point where you actually see the Hyksos pouring down into Crete and setting up the necropolis there as far yeah. as uh, the preservation and the worship of the dead. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, and also understand that, you know, Egypt is sort of considered part of the original Indo-Aryan mm -hmm. uh, countries. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have a group of people that are in this group called the Kabiri. Um, well, and, uh, you know, they're also part of, you know, the Thrace people as well as you, you take that sort of history sort of right. back to. Um, and also related 
within that 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 sort of group you have Cadmus that's in that's yes. interrelated into this and he's also connected into Mount Hermon as well as you take some of his his uh, works back but he set up establishments in uh, Egypt right so you have that overlay of the Scythian presence in there right from uh, early on after the flood so it makes sense that there would be you know, attempts kind of like what was going on in England by the Vikings to reestablish that kingship or that bloodline, right? Right. Yeah, in in um, go ahead. Go on, Robert. Go on, it's all right. Oh, I was gonna talk about um when you get into the Kabari, um as far as bringing the metalworking into the Greek Isles, um, they were actually working in volcanic tubes and like using the the heat forces of the earth. And then when you get into Cadmus um, coming down, uh, essentially bringing written language into uh, out of Mesopotamia into you know the uh, the Western European region. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as you take that Kabiri, you see this this intersection again with um, as being uh, like the pre-Greek people. They're mm -hmm. associated with the Hittites. They're associated with Tyr. Um, they are also associated with the uh, Etruscans. And all of that mm -hmm. association comes through that Figrian uh, religion. Uh, which is the religion of Sibylle that we had talked about in relationship to uh, Palatine Hill as one of the seven ancient Rome's uh, cities that's founded by Romulus and Remus, where the original establishment and, and religious sites there were uh, Etruscan and were Figrian or Sibylline. It's all part of that same religious aspect. So yes, lots of connections there. Yes, yes. Uh, um... Garrett, you just mentioned that Thrace would the the Roman Emperor, is it Maximinus um, of Thrace, be one of those? Um, I haven't traced his bloodlines as being Thrace, but I haven't really looked into him. Right, so uh, typically in Rome, the bloodlines would not come from Thrace; they would be more inter um, Etruscan or inter. Roman sort of bloodlines from Romulus and Remus. I'm not saying he wasn't because Thrace was a people that was, you know, around and known known for their their warriors. So he may have been a warrior from there. Mm. Um, the uh, the bloodlines from Romulus and, and Remus are typically understood as the gens Julia, um, and they produced most of the houses of of the senators and the royal bloodlines that most of the, the the Caesars would have come from. That that doesn't mean like there wouldn't have been one that was outside and recognized yeah. with that sort of ancient royal bloodline. Yeah, he was meant to be an eight footer as well. So he's a big lad. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, there's lots um, of Thracians recorded as giants. So yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, I was going to say, as far as uh, Jupiter Ultimus Maximus, um, the Etruscans actually had a temple to him. And, you know, he was the warrior and he would paint his face red, which is where we see the Roman emperors um, essentially getting the, the red face or even Donald Trump, some say, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So cool the, Thracians, <laughs> the Thracians come from Thrax as their giant 
patriarch, son of uh, Ares, the war god, and the ram or the goat for imagery. So, mm. just to throw that in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you can care, and that's the thing, when you look at these lines of um, the different totem animals that they would worship and carry um, from the serpents to the goats yeah. to the, yeah. you can, um, and you, then again, you linking that back to the different faces as far as. Yeah, and, it, and it's important to understand this, that if, and I believe they were, you have these uh, giants being born from watchers. They're going to take up an imagery from the DNA that's passed on because the mm. watchers to interact physically in the world instead of the sort of that opalescent spiritual um, identity that they have that can go interdimensional. Um, but to interact physically, they need, need to take a physical form. And typically they would also have special clothing to make that physical body sort of last longer and that's mm -hmm. where the word golden fleece comes from because that was the, the the material that was that made the uh the clothing for for, for the gods and mm -hmm. so you have with the uh sarmatians or the serpentine individuals and certainly you know you look at akhenaten uh out of the uh, armana dynasty if you google that or you get a chance to see a king tut uh, museum uh, look at him he's got a serpentine face so mm -hmm. you have a long protruding chin you have a high cheekbone and i'm using akhenaten because it's it's a diluted bloodline by over a thousand mm -hmm. years after the flood and so he has these high cheekbones, these thin lips, these large eyes that wrap around. And these eyes were said to glow uh, as because the, they were called the shining ones as well. And their eyes could light up a room. And they mm -hmm. has this big, huge, long, e elongated skull that's sutureless. So that's why most right. of the depictions have these stupid, silly hats to cover them up. But mm. when you see busts that don't have the hat on, you see this elongated skull. You mm. look at that, you see a serpent. And that would go back to the serpentine look to the seraphim angels, mm. watchers who have a serpent face and uh, six, uh, six wings. And so if you say, okay, well, we were talking about cherubim earlier, and we have these dark-haired a variety of Indo-Aryans, you know, part of the Greeks as well. Uh, right. Scythians tend to be more blonde hair and red hair variety, just as mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Anak, uh, the Anakim um, produced the Amorites were blonde hair mm -hmm. and blue-eyed, and the Horim, who intermarried with the Edomites that we talked about earlier, were red hair, pale mm -hmm. skin, and hazel eyes. So again, same types of people, uh, different groups, and that's why you get that sort of conflating back into them uh, being the Israelites and taking over the Israelite blessings and Messianic promise and mm -hmm. all the mythos that yeah. goes with that. Yeah, but yeah. with the with the cherubim, they would have produced the dark-haired ones like Gilgamesh or the Hyksos mm -hmm. kings or the Philistines and all of these other dark-haired groups, but they had four other faces or three other faces. So you see the lion face that's part of the crew uh, and the sphinxes, and we have the lion men of Moab and the lion-like 
uh, men of Gad. And you have King Arioch in the War of Giants, which means lion-like from Sumeria. And you have the Ermalu warriors that are depicted both before and after the flood in Sumerian literature. And you have gods like Nergal or Mahis who have lion faces on them. Not all the gods were serpent faces. And so they would have produced people that looked just like them. And then we talked about these bird-faced ones. Well, you have the Anunnaki, right? They have a bird face. You have Horus has a bird face. You have types of warriors in the past that looked like a bird, and they were produced kings and the priest class. So you have um, the Tengu that are in Southeast Asia, China, Mm -hmm. India, and Japan. And if you Google Tengu, you're going to see this bird-faced warrior and they were thought to introduce the martial arts to Asia, uh, which again is a part of that whole warrior class. And there's a group in the uh, the Kishamaya called the uh, Zibalba, which were these demigod owl face warrior demigods. And they had a branch that was called the House of Kamazots, and that means the House of Bat. And then if you Google Kamazots, you get up this imagery of this bat-faced outfit that basically batman mm-hmm. wears as a superhero I, I i don't make this up South so, yeah yeah so i i think there and then you know we don't get a lot of this sort of biblically i i, I named a little bit with the lions and you know you have that nergal god which is in in the bible um and then you have uh the dog warriors which has a strong right. mythos right and uh, you have anubis who's a jackal god Exactly, right. Yeah. And he produces uh, large amounts of warriors they actually live in a city called uh, uh, Sinoopolis, which means dog mm. city. Right. And you have these mercenary warriors that go out, you know, through history past a thousand AD there. They have records of these dog warriors right. uh, and they're part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so we actually get a uh, another god in the bible that's called nibaz who the avim worshipped as well as nergal of the east where the avim worshipped uh, which is the lion face god and uh you you start to think well maybe there's there's more to this dog warrior thing than than what we give it credit for yeah yeah and even still today you know you occasionally will see the dog-faced um people offspring in like india and also in india you have uh, garuda the uh chicken like warrior yeah you said it's a chicken like yeah i think it's a chicken head with a with a human body yeah ruta can, yeah, can be also associated i think with a uh an ape-like um yeah. god as well that 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 but the dog ones are definitely a war you know um uh, connected to garuda as well Mm. It's, um, it's, it's fascinating. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you think that the um, they say it was Garusa rubber? Yeah. The chicken. Do you think that? Um, what are you saying then, Gary? That it's similar to? Do you think that could be Sasquatch? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think. I think that's where. <laughs> if, I mean, we don't get you know in the West anything with with ape or monkey gods but it's it's a strong tradition uh in in the east so yeah there's a few gods that you could probably uh take that back to so it will be so bizarre to see like a 
a nine foot Sasquatch with a chicken's head. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it seems to be something different or unique about the Sasquatch as well, because they're not as large, right? As what a, a Nephilim or a Raphaim would be. Right. Right. for the most part but they are intelligent they do have glowing eyes they're associated with caves they're associated with little people they're associated with aliens uh, there's yeah there's a lot of connections that show some kind of similarity they were here before the flood they're here after the flood they're on all continents uh, all over the world um, just as you know pyramids are just as little people are just as the giants are so there's there's something that's demonstrating a connection there that's rooted in uh, the polytheist pantheon right and could the sasquatch maybe even be tied somehow into the dog men mm. um they seem more ape-like though yeah they seem more more ape-like um i would you know except for the one eye i would say the the uh the sasquatch would be more akin to the cyclops mm, okay yeah right um, and you know the cyclops um you know there's there's sort of two different two different levels of them they were part of the gigantes mm -hmm. um but then, and so they would be way larger and more godlike, but then they also married with human females and created a new breed that had right. one eye. Um, so, and they were very hairy. Hmm. So they'd be more closer to that, but maybe they would be more, maybe ogre-like than what the yeah. Sasquatch yeah. would be. But again, there there are connections there, right? Hmm. And they're considered deformed giants, right? But right. they're just right. a different breed. Well, and interestingly, like in all these different philosophies from all these cultures, as time has progressed, a lot of these beings have kind of degressed or kind of um, de-evolved or like, you know, hidden away in the earth and like, you know, um, yeah, yeah. It is all... Um... I think this is what makes like now being such a fantastic time to be alive. It is so strange. Yeah. It, well, it is because more and more information is coming out for as long as they permit it. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, that, that's why speaking to you, Gary, it's um, it's always uh, a pleasure. It really is. Well, if we can connect dots for people, that's really what it's all about, so that they can dig deeper into things themselves and 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 have a better understanding as to where we came from and what's you know kind of going on in in this world. So, um, but you know the the as when I was thinking about uh, the Scythians, as as we were talking with all of these different sort of connections, you know, the Scythians are connected to Tartarus as well as part of their from the polytheist side how they show up and mm. so you have uh, people and and, and, the, and again the Scythians are the Tuatha you know did an end they're the yeah. Tuatha Danu the tribe of Anu um, and the tribe of Diana in uh, other versions, which is also an Etruscan god and connected to Greek gods as well. So, but you have um, that, and they're also called the Datanu, 
uh, in uh, the Ugaritic text, uh, the assembly of the Datanu, uh, overseen by the Balim gods of, of Lone Hermon. So there's a sort of strong connection, but it's this Tartarus explanation through polytheism that explains how, from their perspective, how giants show up after the flood. I lean more to a second creation because they seem to be not as big and different than the ones before the flood. But from a polytheist perspective is these are the giants that escaped from a prison called Tartarus, which is in their underworld in Hades, which is the same as the abyss um, in in the, the Judaic and Christian um, understanding of prehistory uh, where the abyss is located in Sheol or Hades. And it's the prison for the worst of the disembodied spirits of the giants and for the fallen angels. And But after the flood, from a Greek perspective, the uh, the Scythians or the Indoarians, they escape out of the prison of Tartarus mm-hmm. and out through a portal that's in the land of Scythia or the land of Asia Minor by the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they become part of this Tartarian mythos, both before and after the flood. And there's two different aspects to that. But they they fan out. But it's that connection to, to Tartarus that's, that's kind of interesting, right? And, right. you know, we also... Um, you know, we get uh, uh, cuneiform tablets that were discovered in uh, the Romanian region uh, that go back to before cuneiform being recorded in um, in Sumeria. So again, sort of a test to the language and the culture before the flood, how old it was. So some people say some 27 to 2900 BC or to 3500 BC for those um tablets that, that that were discovered in in, in the Romanian region. Hmm. And then you get into this whole Tartarian mythos after the flood and all of these different empires that we have this this sort of lost history uh, of the yeah. East. But you know the 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 Scythians um, are thought to be through a lot of evidence uh, to have produced the Khan dynasty and the Mongols. Right. As you know, the, the Mongols are always sort of pictured as pale-skinned and, and tall and large. They are yep. not like the typical Asians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Red the word Mongols comes from a Greek word meaning great. Um, mm. and, really? Uh, yeah. And Genghis Khan had red hair and hazel eyes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And Mongols were expert horsemen just like the scythians were right right um and so think- uh, in in ancientology the rus which are the russians the slavs the avars and the scythians are all interchanged um all sort of interchangeable in antiquity and they're directly connected to uh the mongols and marco polo referred to mm. the mongols as as the uh, Cossacks, which goes back to the Tartars at a Kiev. So they're completely related. And, you know, the Muscovites, when the Mongols invaded, they welcomed them as long lost relatives. Um, So this is uh, this is a a connection that's in there 
that's been lost to history or at least recorded history that as it's taught that again uh, sort of points us to a completely different understanding of how the early post-diluvian world worked up to let's say a thousand years ago right and also um when you look at the Khazarians or the Khazars they've always had kind of a special place um outside of the governmental system they were always like for high they kind of have like the gypsy rights of Europe in Russia yeah they are yeah. there's very much that way and the gypsies are directly related to them <laughs> right yeah you think that's why the, the the Mongols were were apparently a lot bigger than usual like Asian countries because yeah. of the yeah right yeah it makes sense now doesn't it yeah. yeah that is uh very intriguing just how yeah. i mean like you're saying it's it's an intricate spider web you know uh and the the, the holy word on horseback as well yeah well you know and there's like there's paintings from the 13th century that show mongols and the russians being pictured yeah. as identical i mean yeah. that's just you just can't make this sort of stuff up. It's out there. It's just, yeah. uh, you know, are we prepared to sort of uh, actually accept what some of the real history was? But it's really yes. hard to uh, get at that because there's a strong sort of philosophy or theology of Sophia that is dominating history. Mm -hmm. And as far as the reach of the mongrels, you know, at one point you had what Genghis Khan yeah. riding up the Rhine River into France. So, yeah. you know, and, and that Tatarian Empire, um, you know, a lot of people say was even larger than Rome itself. I think when you look at the land base from, you know, almost to Kamchatka to, you know, they were invading into Austria and into Germany. And I mean, that is a much larger base. Uh, yeah. I think the lands that they actually held was sort of comparable to the size of Rome. And, and there's a sort of a logistics that every empire reaches is that you can only, uh, you'll only have enough resources and ability to get to parts of the empire that, that you can continually sort of control. And once right. you once you go beyond that, now you become weak to, um, you know, rebellions and, and, and people taking you on in your weak points. So uh, but, yeah, I think you have to say, OK, if you look at the empire as far as they actually took, as opposed to how long they kept it, mm -hmm. uh, it would have been bigger than the Roman Empire, maybe double, triple the size. Right. That is. Um, that's a lot of area. <laughs> that would that have been like everything from Asia to Europe, Gary, not including uh, the Americas. Yeah, inclu in, in, yeah, including, oh, including. You know, Russia, including Russia, right, right. not to the Americas, but from you know you've right. got most of China, you've got Russia, you've got the Ukraine, you've got into the middle part of Europe, you go right down into Persia and into the Middle East. That's mm -hmm. the range. That's 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 a monstrous piece of uh, the world. Yes, now, massive. did they yeah. did they go elsewhere? We don't know, but there's not any real records that they were strong uh, mm -hmm. mariners. So, 
Well, we do have uh, genetic ties now um, between Siberia and some of the Native American um, Aboriginal people. So as far as dating back, you know, some um, 13, 15,000 years BC. Yeah. So. yeah. Do, you think, do you think, Robbie, that could be like at the top where Alaska is, you know, the land? Oh, the land bridge up think, there, yeah, yeah. Do you think that could have been the access point? I think that could have been one of the the many possible access points. Um, when, you, when you start looking at South America and the Mayans, um, you know, they basically said they were fleeing from like Atoll, um, which a lot of people relate to ancient Atlantis, you know, because they were being suppressed. So, you know, there's a lot of these Native American tribes that talk about they were fleeing from a catastrophe or for some kind of, you know, from some yeah. kind of oppression. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, particularly in the Americas, you have, you know, like the white uh, snake clan that the Hopi talk about, that, you know, mm -hmm. their ancestors the from an island clan. catastrophe. You've got uh, the Aztecs that take their um, uh, history back to people who come from through Quetzalcoatl, serpent-faced uh, god, and the, the sages that he brought with them. Uh, from an island that suffered a catastrophe, it goes all right. through sort of South America. So Atlantis, before the flood, was an extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily advanced civilization. And they were more than just the island of Atlantis. Right. Um, they were actually 10 kings with 10 empires within it. They were thought of as the helm of world government. Mm. So Poseidon, as we get it through the post-Diluvian accounting, um, has uh, 10 kings through his hum human female uh, consort, uh, Clyto, that are going to operate yeah. over these 10 empires. So they had occupation in that empire in South America, in Central America, in Ireland, in England, in Spain, in uh, um, North Africa. Um, so uh, just to give the people a size of the scope of that empire that they were, and through war, they were trying to conquer the whole world. So they had ability to go worldwide. Right. And they sent the families out to the different nations to rule. You know, as far yeah. as those ten, ten Pestadian kings. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is interesting. Been, uh, Go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Robert. It must have been um, a, a massive area for ten kings. Surely. Yeah, and it, it it also adds to some of the confusion out there. So people say, "Well, we're finding Atlantean type of architecture or." Uh, artifacts like in North Africa. Well, of course you would, um, because that was part of their um, their empire. Egypt was part of their empire before right. the flood, and you know Ethiopia we used to be named was named Adiops, and it sort of has a, an etymological connection back to um, Atlantis, and that was originally located in North Africa. You know, and, and only in the last couple thousand years did it transliterate into Ethiopia and move over to as the name of a country, you know, uh, a little bit further east and south. 
Yeah, and Ethiopia, when we think of Ethiopia, um, it's not this small little country that we think of. Ethiopia basically stretched, you know, from uh, ancient Kenya, Egypt into yep. uh, Southeast Asia. It was yep. a huge sect of, of land that, at that, you know, in that point in history. Yeah. Well, I, I, so compared to now, to Ethiopia now, it's just no comparison really, Robbie, is there? Oh, no, no. That's a huge area, that, isn't it? Yeah. Are they, would they be linked to Egypt at all? Um, yeah, if you get back into the early stories of Ethiopia, um, and um, I believe it was, who was it that brought the gods into Egypt? Um, there, it was Ham that brought the gods into Egypt from Ethiopia um, and, and set up all the miscellaneous worship and all the... Uh, the ritual practices and the sacrifices. Um, yeah, there's a direct link between uh, Ethiopia and um, early Egypt. And and remember, there was Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt, right? Lower Egypt so, as well, right? Yeah, which are flipped on their head yep. because of how we look at you know where the equator is. Yeah, yep. yeah, and it's it's. Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, trying to trace these miscellaneous, and a lot of times I find that you can't um, necessarily trace the bloodlines, but you can trace the um, mechanisms of culture as far as the the different mystery schools, as far as the working in metal, as far as you know, um, and then you get into the to the hair colors as well. You yep. know? Yeah. Right, as far as would they have distinct, distinct circles, Robbie, like, uh, like say, redder, uh, blonder, blacker? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in, in the Egyptian, um, like, different uh, stellas that are on the walls, you have, you know, the black-haired people fighting the yellow-haired people and the red-haired people. And the red-haired people, it was common in Egypt for them to burn them um, and then take the ashes and sprinkle it on the field, you know, in the time that you know human sacrifice was still still pretty wide open. and as far as the red hair you know you have the um red-haired pharaohs coming in you know from the west and and those links to the western lands of ireland so it's it's you know the it's a constant churning and meshing and distillation of multiple groups migrating and fighting and it's it's you know quite the petri dish yeah, <laughs> yeah. but like but like now, there's there's um, that many different different people, different um, from different cultures. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, in America, they say now is the melting pot. You know, um, it's uh, yeah, interesting to see um, migration and how it's been um, used as a form of warfare. Um, how it's just part of the natural function. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, like anything, you know, it can be weaponized. Yeah. 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 So now Gary, looking back, um, when we get into a lot of the prophets, um, they were said to have, um, red hair and, and we see, like we were just talking about as far as the step people and the, uh, mongrels, um, do you find, um, 
in regard to the the serpent lines and the dragon kings um any regard to the red hair specifically yeah so typically in at least more of the western sort of hierarchy uh, the red hair is the more pure variety uh, the higher level and uh then you get into kind of a mix of the red hair and the blonde hair slightly lower so it would be more like the strawberry blonde Mm -hmm. um, which is also considered pretty much equal with that aspect and the combination and the blonde hair was more of a lower class and more of a warrior class Mm. Um, but over time you see both sort of surfacing as 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 running the bloodlines so yeah, you get as I you know as I mentioned earlier, you get uh, two distinct groups that are in the land of the covenant, who are you know red-haired variety, and which are the Horim, and then you also have the uh, blonde hair, which are the Anakim, and they both produce hybrids fr- out of that. So when you have um, Timna, who is uh, you know a daughter of a Lotan seer, the the Horim, uh, and one of the dukes of Edom is going to marry Eliphaz, son of Esau, who also has sort of that reddish, ruddy skin color of, but he's not as large as the giants, but he's a direct descendant of, of Esau, who had all of his blessings and birthrights taken away and the mm. Masianic blessing. And he's going to form a new dynasty that's going to live in the Petra area amongst the Anakim, or the Malachim, I'm sorry. Um, and this produces the Aleph dynasties. Um, Duke comes from Aleph, and it's the Elven mm. dynasties that starts to become part of the whole bloodline mythos of the Elven bloodlines mm. uh, of the West that come out of the Tuatha Dé Danann or the Dat Tanu. Right. Which links into the vampire as well. As in, um, vampires in the the Upia and Strigarikara. I'm I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. As far as linking in with the uh, the vampire and the Strigari. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we have. I think as you sort of back yourself into that, uh, I think the best place to start is the best is the. point of the modern understanding of a vampire which comes through dracula son of a dragon as the a would be the son of dracula son of a dragon uh that uh is based on vlad the impaler mm-hmm. part of the ordo draconis and the sarkhan iran who takes his bloodlines back to hercules and the agrathy uh tribe of of, of hercules mm. <laughs> and so he has Vlad has these has this red hair, uh, pale skinned, hazel eyes. He was educated in the mystery school of Solomon, and uh, he had a light issue, and uh, so he was more of a night person. So if we start to understand some of those allegories, and he drank blood, right? Uh, that would give him immortality. And just as the Nephilim drank blood, and he had these serpentine cobra teeth, just like you have the cobra imagery with the with the Egyptian dynasty. Right. So 
as we work that sort of word back and understand that this is the Tuatha de Danan, as we understand it, that come up the, the Danube and over into Britain and, and as you go further north up the Danube into uh, Germany and into uh, Sweden and Norway, and you get a word that's called upier, mm -hmm. which were night operative vampires that Vlad is sort of part of. And it's that etymology of upier that is you know, really kind of interesting because you know, you have uh, Uber or with a B uh, is more germ Germanic, but you have more the Scythian word, which is Uper, uh, which also means overlord, that right. Upier is part of this etymolog etymological chain. And uh, we also see that as Oberon, as it mm -hmm. shows up in Midsummer's Night Dream, where you have all of these fairies, just as Tuatha de Danann were the fairy people of the noble elves. Um, and it's part of the elven gens of that elven fairy bloodline or the grail race and Teutonic yeah. Ober as well, O-B-E-R as well as Aria and Ubar. Um, so where you get that Uber in Germany in the modern trend, trend, transliteration. And it's Uber in Scythian and Sarmatian for, for, for overlord or over rain. And it's all part of this ancient sort of snake order uh, and this order of blood drinking and rituals as, as well. So if you keep all of that in mind, um, you have that word strigoi, as I think that you threw out, Robbie. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's the Romanian, you know, and understanding that Vlad the Impaler is from the Romanian region. Mm -hmm. um, Romanian for witch and yes. a popular word for a vampire. And its Latin derivative or source would be strix, meaning a screech owl. Right. And uh, vampires were night witches and upiers or and oberons. So you have females and you have in the night witches, female witches, and you have male. Uh, I guess more warlock would be probably a, a, a better word for it. And uh, so Lilith is understood as a screech owl right. um, and connected to owl imagery. And just as in Isaiah 34, you have the, the screech owl, which goes back to the Hebrew word Lilith, uh, mm. thought to be again, again connected back to, 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 to Lilith. Yeah. And Lilith was understood not only as a screech owl uh, and would hop, a lot like a goat, but I don't know why that comes down through history, but that's mm. part of the description of it. But she's considered in sort of more of the Hebrew tradition, what they called a lamia as a half woman and half serpent. So again, you get that serpentine dragon sort of imagery overlay, even though she's considered an owl. And so if you understand dragon as more of a patriarchal bloodline mm. and uh, owl and fairy as a matriarchal bloodline, so dragon patriarchal, sometimes known as as raven as well, as as part of the bloodline. You start to see these connections that cross many cultures. And this Lamia was a blood-sucking Demia, and also cognate as understood as an upier, as a female upier, mm -hmm. and it flew at night as a screech owl in Greek mythology. 
So again, mm -hmm. you see it crossing over all of these different kinds of cultures. And it was a, she was a killer or this type of thing was a killer of infants and was into yeah. child sacrifice. And Lilith is, is, is allegedly to be the original allegory for the screech owl as being an offspring or a creation of Tiamat which was a serpentine parent god before the flood. So you have all of this sort of imagery that just, you know, just goes right back into this vampire drinking of blood, allegories for the Nephilim bloodlines, back to the Nephilim and the Raphaim and their desire to drink blood to create, recreate immortality and larger cognizance for the things that they lost when in Genesis 6, 3, their immortality in the physical world as a physical being, as opposed to their counterfeit spirit, which doesn't sleep and either goes to Hades into the abyss or wanders the earth, it still remains immortal, but the body was no longer. And they were looking to do things to recreate this immortality. Right. So that's all woven into it. And you see all of that sort of come into the whole modern vampire line. And then mixed in more recently is the other bloodline that is kind of like a rival to the vampires, and it's the werewolves, right? right? That that go back to really? mostly through to Greek mythology and back really? to Zeus changing yeah. uh, King Lycon from and his family from you know a you know Nephilim into a wolf-like. Uh, transformative being and so they tend to be kind of rivals to to the to the serpent uh, vampires mm. yeah 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 that yeah that, that's a that's a blockchain of stuff for people to digest <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, it, but it plays right in with um you know all the modern mythology from the uh, vampire going back into the fey line touching on the lycopanthe um yeah and, and a lot of what's in modern popular culture it it does because these writers that are doing it are there are either uh super adepts or they're being passed on this event uh, information by the adepts to keep mm -hmm. that mythos alive in entertainment right. and uh you know when you we look at this blood drinking you know trend um tradition i mean that was also part of atlantis yeah and in, and in atlantis they tapped the holy dragon for blood to yeah. give them that immortality yeah. now a holy dragon would be a god there would be a seraphim angel made physical right mm. that's about the only way i would understand that even though they're you know they're yeah to give them that sort of immortality that they're looking for and uh you know, when you look at uh, how much blood drinking is involved in the royal orders, the royal bloodlines, the royal occult uh, religions, I mean, grail was, you know, the grail vessel was used and or a skull as it comes out of the Sarmatian nice. tradition was used to drink blood from. Nice. Um, and it was part of their their complete rituals. Uh, you've got uh, blood drinking in the book of Enoch that uh, uh, they were originally, you know, they started to drink blood after they lost their immortality. Um, you have, uh, you know, blood that was uh, in blood 
wine mixtures that were introduced by the gods, like Hathor out of out of Egypt. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then you've got what really starts to get weird is is the starfire and the divine menstruum. Oh, yeah. Uh, that kind of blood that they would drink during moon rituals. Yes. Um, and, and that was and, all part of the dragon court ritual of the right. Sangreal of Cain and Nephilim, as they believed. And they called yep. it the Starfire. And they thought of it as, I'm sorry, I'm on a bit of a roll here, but a noble supplement, as they called it, to the royal yes. bloodlines only, and only to those ones who would have high levels yep. of degrees in, in the occult <laughs> religion. And, and they considered the female menstruum as the lunar essence of the dragon queen. The Starfire. The Starfire. It was a Kayan, it was also understood as Kayan, which also means Starfire. Kayan, which is Q U A I N, is the Hebrew spelling yep. for Cain. Yeah. And it's also known as the menstruum of, and you'll like this, of the Red Dragon. The Red Dragon, yes. Yep. yep. I think we've got. Um... Well, and I was Which just going to relate all this back into the dragon itself as far as when we go back into the Scythian and we see these dragons and we see the dragon cult moving into Egypt with the cult of Sobek and the anointing with the crocodile fat. And we can just follow these these dragon lines, these serpent dragon kings um, right up into, you know, the, the house of Windsor with the black dragons all over, you know, parts of London and it's uh yeah quite interesting with the with the dragons themselves yeah i, I mean saying, saying that probably the uh, anglo-saxon flag was a white dragon on red background mm, yeah yeah and we were talking about the red and the white dragon before as far as yeah. uh yeah yeah but the, the whales that they, they they used the red dragon on their flag right especially we didn't use the white one Yep, and yeah. King Charles currently uses the red dragon for King of Wales. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So do, do you think do you think um like this blood drinking uh, this adrenochrome is the link to it in some way? Um, if you look at the traditional method of starfire and the extraction of the menstrual blood, um, it was generally related to a, a whole selection of hormones um, oh, that they right. were seeking after to enhance like uh, cognizant awareness so that they could be on a higher state and rule um, you know, with, with a better will towards taking care of the whole. It was, it was a high prominent stance of, of you know, um, beauty. And, and as things transitioned, um, you know, I think we see the uh, bastardization of that tradition. Right, right. Here, I'll uh, make some nice connections here for you, Robbie, on the uh, Egyptian Scythian um, Sobek connections. So, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I put a blurb of this in, 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 in my first book. So, you know, the Egyptian crocodile god, uh, Sobek, uh, was mm -hmm. also called Mesa, M-E-S-S-E-H. And it's Mesopotamian equivalent uh, because it's thought that religion was transplanted through um, with uh, Osiris and uh, some 
transliterations of 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 that was of that of what Osiris would have been known in Sumeria. I won't go down that rabbit trail mm -hmm. rabbit trail because that will take a while to explain. But uh, Azar is basically the the word uh, moved over with. Ham and Mizraim and Hermes to Egypt to set up the Egyptian religion after Babel, according to uh, Masonic tradition. And so it was known as uh, in Sumeria as Mushus, M-U-S-H-U-S, -S, which was a giant serpentine uh, godlike being. And uh, it was the same as Mus Yusam Gal, which is Sumerian for serpent. And what's really interesting is the Mesopotamian and Egypt royalty called themselves dragons yes. um, because uh, not only from their genealogies and those serpentine looks that I was talking about earlier, but they're through some of their religious practices as well, where they were anointed in the fat of Musus or Mesa uh, so that they could be anointed as the anointed ones and messiahs, which in, right. in the occult tradition from Mesa and Musos is where Messiah comes from. And that the uh, the crocodile imagery represented what they called the kingly aptitude of the Magianic dragon. Mm. And uh, the specific emphasis on, uh, you know, on dragons. So, it, you know, it has, you know, quite the, uh, um, the imagery. And it's also part of the whole grail bloodline imagery mm -hmm. and the bloodline of the fairies and the elven bloodline um, through the various matriarchal uh, fairy bloodline and dragon bloodline that I was talking about earlier. So I thought maybe it would be good to throw in sort of that connection because you've been sort of walking through those Egyptian connections all, all the way through. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's 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 rather interesting again how these things cross so many cultures, so many millennia with the same sort of consistent sort of message. S uh, consistent message, consistent symbolism, consistent ritual. Um, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. And Very. and then what they do with the occultists, and this is things that you know Christians who aren't preparing themselves properly for are going to have to sort of reconcile in their mind when they start mm. to try and de-deify Christianity with Jesus and then move Christianity into the end time polytheist Babylonian religion is that that word Messiah uh, is rooted in this. Um, yes. But also uh, you have uh, it, this in the uh, theosophical or Gnostic sort of tradition that mm -hmm. they're going to present um, a dragon bloodline but as they cut off the monotheist connections to bring it back into polytheism they're going to hit moses with this messes mm -hmm. that moses mm -hmm. they will say because I've, I've read the writings on this that mm -hmm. moses was actually of a dragon bloodline anointed mm -hmm. accordingly uh, and was a polytheist who was educated at Heliopolis, which which he was, and he would have right. been put through the mysteries uh, and would have been an adept raised from childhood because they didn't know he was was uh, Hebrew. And he took the polytheist religion back to 
Israel, not the monotheist religion. And mm. the monotheist religion is something that went rogue probably in the time of the uh, the monarchy is the most consistent rationalization I get with my research on this. And what they do by that is they cut off Judaism, mm. Christianity, and Islam at a mm -hmm. single point to try and pull them into the, the, the end time polytheist religion. Yeah. And we know Moses would have been sworn his oath and educated in polytheism before his conversion, because there's an interesting passage in the book of Jude, uh, which is only one chapter, uh, where when Moses died, has recollection of Moses's death, Wow. Uh, just before uh, Joshua and the Israelites crossed over the Jordan to finish the conquest of the covenant land, right. you have Satan showing up claiming by legal rights hmm. Moses. And that because Moses had sworn his oaths to him, God holds everybody accountable for the oaths that they take. So you need to be very, very careful. Hmm. In this case, though, God trumps that and he sends. Michael to not permit Satan to have Moses, but this whole belief system has, even from a Christian perspective of the polytheists, they have legal rights while they run this world, and mm. they and Satan was there to claim Moses as what he thought his legally uh, bound property. Right, right. And also know that Satan offered jesus all the empires of the world right all the physical all the physical empires of the world absolutely and that's you see that consistently is the debate between you know the 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 materialists and the the people that believe in higher realms you know the constant struggle between um esau and 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 just you know it's it's a consistent factor in this whole storyline I think it is just. Um, I, mean, I don't know what to make of it, me, Robert. Mm. It's just fascination upon fascination. It's uh, yeah, yeah, and and just that idea of Moses. Um, I mean, very much like Abraham. Um, you know, when he was he was uh, as far as the Amorites. A lot of people relate the Amorites to the Scythians. And um, Abraham, when he was basically um, hidden away after um, Nimrod was trying to, to put him to death, um, much like King Herod, um, he was raised in a cave, you know, for 10 years and then came out on his 11th year. So a lot of people think that Abraham as well was uh, originally trained in the esoteric um, occult, you know, religions that are more material based in regard to um, manipulating the physical you know hey gary what the uh, i think you could make some good connections to the amorites back to the scythians through that blonde hair and blue eyes that we talked about and as they're right. depicted on 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 reliefs and the amorites um, I think were the offspring of the Anakim or the Anakites, which would have been mm -hmm. part of the Datanu or the Raphaim groups that were, mm -hmm. were, were, were there. And, you know, for Amorites, we don't get a patriarch in the Bible. They are mm -hmm. a class of families. 
But you right. take that back in Hebrew, it can mean families, but it can mean a different kind or a different species. Mm. And I think they had a Raphaim um, patriarch uh, right. who intermarried with human females to create the hybrid Amorites. Right. And with the Anakim, we actually do get a patriarch, but he's not listed in the table of nations. And it's his name is Arba. And the city was Hebron. When it was known back in his time, it was Kiriath Arba, or the city of Arba, where the three Anakim kings are depicted in, in the time of the Covenant Land Conquest of uh, Ahiman, Sheshai, and um, Talmai. And so Arba is a patriarch that isn't shown up, and he's a Raphaim, he's an Anakim, and he's the father mm -hmm. of them. So we have this this kind of connection where you have this intermingling of these um, Scythian-like people, same color of hair, producing hybrids. And you also have a presence in the land of the covenant that lasts until, in terms of the name, and there's probably was many more names, but uh, uh, there's one particular city that was uh, called Scythopolis up till the time of Josephus or the time of Jesus. And mm. it was defined as the house of power. Mm. And house of biblically, power. yeah. So we don't, if you, if you Google in the Bible, you don't get Scythopolis, but you get Beth Sheen and Beth Shan and uh, I think one other transliteration of the house of the Shea, S-I-D-H-E, um, is, is, is how you would take uh, the Beth Shan back to. And the Shea was another right. word for the Tuatha did and end, just as we yeah, talked right. about on that, on that Monday. And I don't know whether you put up yeah. the picture for that of the uh, painting of the writers of the Shea, which of the Tuatha did and end, and they're right. It's just, it's just unbelievable <laughs> how things intermix. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's ready. It's ready to be released. Our, it's, what was the artist's name again? Was it John? Oh, I can't remember the name of the the. Yeah. Well, so if you Google, if you just Google um, "writers of the Shea," S S I D H E, you'll get the picture and you'll get the uh, the painter. And it was the Amorites that basically controlled all of Mesopotamia before the rise of Abraham for for a couple thousand years. I think after. I think after. Was it um, after? Okay, okay. Yeah. So like you have the War of Giants where the Amorites are still in the land and you don't get these Amoritish kings yet in uh, Sumeria. So place the war of giants at just around 2000 bc a little you know a few years after that and then you see you know i think with the complete changing of the uh balance of power of all of these wars that were going on you see amorites moving into the babylon and setting up those babylon kind of uh or not babylon but those amorite dynasties in around the 18 to 1700s BC. Yeah. And uh, you can sort of follow uh, some of those kings' names. And they, they what's interesting about um, those uh, kings' names, which are all sort of patronymic uh, titles as well, is that those names tend to connect back again into the names provided in the Ugaritic text in the city mm. of Ugarit, which I think was the city of Og. Yeah, yeah, okay. John Duncan is uh, Gary. 
Okay, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I will be using that. It's, uh, it's quality, isn't it? <laughs> um, what time are we on now, uh, Robbie? It's not showing me on the, on my side. I got about Please. an hour and a half. All right, okay. Um, are we good? Good now to wrap things up. Oh sure. Yeah. Right, uh, Gary. <laughs> A lot was covered then. A lot. Yeah. Um, incredible, mate. Always incredible. Yeah, it was fun because we were we were moving around a lot. But you know, hopefully, what people maybe sort of got out of it is is how those dots connect uh, yeah. through time and through geography and through different nations. So there's a consistent story that's out there. It's just put you know, putting all of the pieces together to get a better understanding because the world we live in today comes out of that history. Yeah. And those who are sure. ruling today are still ruling in the background. 100%. Um, and it is, is what I might have said earlier, it's important not necessarily to believe everything that they they believe, but we need to understand that it's what they're doing with their belief system that we always have to be wary of. And when we understand that belief system and what they're trying to do with it, it starts to make sense of the world that we're living in today. You know, particularly if we're going in, if we are in the uh, fig tree generation with the, uh, with the uh, sorrows. Mm. Well, in yeah, George, as, as far as George Soros, um, that relates to Soros Apis which was the sarcophagus of the Apis bull. So Soros <laughs> literally means sarcophagus or coffin. Yeah. 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 Uh, before you go, Garrett, I will say one thing, uh, mate. Why don't, I will, not why don't, we wish you would um, write the story for a film. That would be awesome. It would be, mate. <laughs> <laughs> And kind well, of show it, the movement of, you know, um, yeah, a script is a lot of, of work in regard to angles and character development. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, it's a it's a whole different literary craft. But, game. Yeah, it is. But I mean, you could create something that would be, um, you know, make the uh, what's that series about the. Uh, uh, with the kings, um, Game of Thrones. Yeah, Throne of King. Uh, what was it? Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you could make a story that's would make that pale by comparison in terms of the kinds yeah. of characters, who these people really were, what they looked like, what they actually did in their rituals, what they actually did in their wars. Right. Um, it, it would uh, it would turn everybody's heads um but yeah i mean stomachs <laughs> yeah yeah it oh. would be it would be interesting i've had i've had some you know a number of people come to me and get information on some you know some of these people but i never have seen it sort of actually make it way into a, a book or a story but maybe it's done mm. and i've just not seen it so but it's it's beyond i, I think it would be beyond my writerary uh, craft and experience to try and do uh, a movie. I beg to differ, Gary. I beg <laughs> to differ. 
Uh, right, but before you go, Gary, would you like to let everyone know where they can get hold of you, please, sir? Yes. So the best way to get a hold of me is through my website, which is the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6, the number 6Conspiracy.com. On that website, you can get a hold of me through the media page where it says contact Gary Wayne for an interview. That's my email. It'll come right through to me. That's also, um, if you can't find it, the email address is genesis6conspiracy.com. So it's basically the same uh, email as the website, only put the, you know, at gmail.com on, on the back of it. So genesis6conspiracy at gmail.com. So if you want to ask me a question or if yes, if I've got some more information uh, or a document on some of the things that we might have been talking about today, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Also on my website, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters, which is just a drop in the bucket of all the information that's in there. So uh, you'll get a good feel for whether or not that's the book for you or not. When my new book comes out, Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2, it'll be marketed also from this same website. Um, and the subtitle on that is going to be How Understanding Prehistory and Giants Helps to Find End Time Prophecy. So it goes really deep into the Bible for targeted at Christians because people are asking me to go tell us the whole story or as much as you can in a, in a single book, I guess, as to how much right. information is there on giants and how does it connect to, to end time prophecy. Um, and on that website, you can get a signed copy from me if you like. So if you live overseas, there's an overseas page. If you live in the U.S., there's a U.S. page. If you live in Canada, there's a Canada page, and I will send you a signed copy of my book. And if you wanted to uh, get a digital version, you can link over to Canada. Uh, the Kindle version and get the Kindle digital version, or you can also link over to barnesandnoble.com, uh, amazon.com and amazon.ca from the website and the buy page. So those are the fastest, easiest ways to get a hold of my book. And if you did want to support your local bookstore, it's distributed by Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania. So they can order it in on one of their book orders and bring it in and you can help your local bookstore, which I'm always fond of people supporting. Nice. nice one, mate. Um, Robert, before you go, mate, would you like to let everyone know they can get all of you as well, please? Yeah, if you want to just uh, Google R Marks Artist, M-A-R-X, um, I'm out there. I'm on all the major platforms. And then I also have the Meta Mindcast, which is M-E-T-T-A, Mindcast, all one word. And I'm on all the major pod servers. So Nice one, mate. Um, yeah, if you've not checked... Uh, Robbie's podcast out, Meta Minecast. Uh, you should do. He's got some uh, quality content on there. Fun stuff. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, gentlemen, you know definitely. And and I also wanted to say, uh, yeah, thank you for coming on, Gary. It's it's so much fun to talk to you, especially bouncing some of these things that um, when I bring them up, most people have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Gary. Um, yeah, I'm not, sometimes I'm not sure whether it's a compliment to know what some people are talking about or not. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, some of the things that we've done research on, it just people aren't really quite ready to hear. So, <laughs> gentlemen, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure and honour speaking to you both, and we will no doubt be speaking soon. Nice. Nice. Uh, well, uh, do you want to stop recording now, uh, Robbie? Then we can sure. Uh...
six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. Stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.